You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, hey guys, thanks for being here with us on Palm Sunday. Um, It's really good to um, see you guys. And um, yeah, I uh, am glad that you're here again with us this morning. Um, I do, of course, want to uh, remind everybody that we are going to be taking communion a little bit later in the service. So if you haven't grabbed elements, this is a great time to do that. Um, Anything that's going to be communion for you uh, this morning, uh, coffee, and donuts often if you're me, Cheez-Its and something else if you're Max or <laughs> whatever whatever you have around your house that we make communion together here. Um, and I am, uh, again, so glad that you're here for Palm Sunday. Um, we don't really, we've actually, I think over this last year been talking much more about the kind of liturgical calendar of the church and um, and it's been something that can be kind of grounding for us uh, and kind of uniting together with a, a tradition of the larger church, um, especially as we're all kind of meeting remotely from home. So uh, if you're not familiar with the church cam- calendar uh, more formally, um, today is Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter. Um, and many of you are probably familiar with the the what that represents in the biblical story. And on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem um, and he rides in on a donkey. And, uh, and there's that common rephrase where the people say, um, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they, they cry out this, this, um, this word Hosanna, which means save us, please. And I love it because it's an imperative. It's, it's a request, but it's also a command. So the way it works in Greek is kind of like compelling God to action. Um, and so I love that because it, it holds kind of two things together. Um, it is a command um, it's a cry for help, but it's also like a proclamation of praise at the same time. And so for the Jewish people, this meaning kind of transitioned over centuries. And what we have from Mark, um, from the Gospel of Mark, uh, the earliest kind of retelling of this is um, where the people say, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Um, And it looks back at this passage from Psalm 118, where the Jewish people um, constantly turned in times of trouble, but over time also as a praise of proclamation and remembrance that God is there and present. And, And it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Um, So with all that in mind, with everything that's happening in our lives, in our country, um, as we celebrate this Palm Sunday, um, 
there is not a more fitting time, I don't think, to be ready to call out in, uh, in, in prayer um, to kind of cry for help and also um, lift up praises at the same time. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, thank you for bringing us to this place. Um, God, I'm so thankful for Central, that we have this space among um, friends, our family, that is a sacred space, not because of anything special about it, especially as we meet from computers and living rooms um, across Los Angeles and, and across the country here, actually sometimes across the world. The sacred space happens when we come together. And as we gather this morning with your church around the world um, in a year that has been marked by all kinds of tragedy, but also in a space that looks forward in hope. God, this, this Easter season, we eagerly anticipate and await your coming more fully into this world. That make us instruments of justice and peace and wholeness and healing. Hear our cries for help together with our proclamation of praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I wanted to share with you <clears throat> um, a liturgy from In Fleshed, which is a resource you're hearing us talk about quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> but I uh, put together a really beautiful piece of, um, I think, uh, of a liturgy here right for Palm Sunday. And so uh, I'm sharing this on my screen here for you. And uh, like we've, <clears throat> excuse me, done in the past, um, I'll read the parts that are not in bold and we'll respond as a community with the parts in bold. Um, and every time that you see Save Us, know that that's based on this imperative, this cry out as we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem, anticipation of um, a changing of the world. Let's pray together. Hosanna, we cry to the spirit of Christ who takes on flesh and moves among us. Save us from the idols of unity that keep the weight of our collective problems on the backs of the suffering and oppressed. Save us from toxic understandings of gender that confine and destroy and encourage violence against self and other. Save us, Save us from the colorblindness that hides the destruction of white supremacy, from white fragility that keeps away honest, honesty and change from performance politics that prioritize perception over action, 
from the limits of identity politics and representation that oversimplify paths to freedom. Save us from, incorporation, from corporations who make a profit through advertisement and campaigns that project social concerns all while evading their taxes and destroying our planet. Save us from an impossible pace not meant from, for survival, only for production. Save us from the violence done in the name of the law through police brutality, the war on drugs, deportation and violence at the border, abuse of incarcerated trans women, stop and frisk, the criminalization of sex work, and all that drives a morality shaped by dominance and control. Save us from easy answers, from individualism, from liberal theologies that perpetuate the status quo, from binary thinking, from hashtag not all men, hashtag not all white people, and hashtag not all Christians, from our desire to hold on to unjust power, from our fear of claiming righteous power. Save us. Save us. From churches that do violence and churches who do not disrupt violence against us. From our struggle to believe that we have what we need to manifest Christ in our lives and create a different way of living together. God, you free us from traps of guilt. You show us the way of liberation that welcomes all who desire justice and healing. Your grace leads us in learning and unlearning. You manifest both softly and fiercely. Your love is a catalyst that opens possibilities we cannot yet imagine. Turn us toward each other. each other. Our salvation, salvation is collective. Hosanna. Amen. Thanks, Bob, for that. That was a great reading. As Bob mentioned earlier, uh, we'll be taking communion. So we're, we're going to do that now. If you haven't had a chance to grab something, please do. Um, as Bob said earlier, that looks like a, a lot of different things for a lot of different people, um, depending on the day. So whatever you have available to yourself, uh, where you are, we will use as communion in this virtual space. So as I've been doing uh, through Lent, I guess mostly, I'm going to read a poem um, that that um, ties into uh, this week. Um, and as has been mentioned, it's Palm Sunday. Um, and I don't know about you. Uh, yes, there we go. I love I love seeing all the different elements in the chat. I don't know about you, but Palm Sunday, as I have gotten older, has taken on like a whole new dimension of meaning. You know, early on, you know, we saw um, all of our uh, lovely kiddos um, that had the palm branches, right? Early on, it was understood, I understood it at least, as this celebratory, you know, like here comes Jesus about to save the day, um, just leading up to Easter. It's, you know, as you get older and you dig into the biblical story and tradition, um, you start to realize that like the, the vast majority of people who were shouting and celebrating and waving palm trees um, on this day um, back in Jerusalem 2000 years ago, got it wrong right so so many people including those closest to him um wanted and expected a conquering messiah that was coming into jerusalem to overthrow the oppressors and overthrow the romans 
And it's a really interesting turn in the biblical story um, where we have this, you know, this subversive ministry for, for a couple of years. And then he's finally coming into Jerusalem and all these crowds are shouting. And it is in some ways this triumphalism, but it's also the exact opposite, right? It's the moment of realization that even after all this time, they didn't get it. Um, and I think often we, we still don't get it. So like I was saying, my church tradition when I was a kid didn't make that distinction, right? Palm Sunday was just a celebration of this triumphalism. I feel like so many of us and so many of our churches, especially in America, um, fall um, into the same exact trap. We still see Jesus as this conquering Messiah. We still see Palm Sunday as this um, moment when, you know, Christianity triumphs over everything else. And uh, I, it's... Um, so we're going to read a poem, <laughs> kind of touches on a little bit about how we all, um, to differing degrees, project what we want and need and um, desire for Jesus to be, um, which might run, run different and run counter in many ways to the Jesus we find um, in, in the Gospels. Um, so there you go. Sorry, there's a little, this is a little mini sermon before the real thing later. <laughs> um, so here... <laughs> Hear this poem. Uh, we'll use this as a, our uh, centering poem and prayer before before taking communion. Um, Passion Tide. Um, this is by um, Michael Coffey. And so the time comes to let you go again, like Mary at her weeping station, like Peter in his running shameful cry, like Mary Magdalene's sad watchful eye like the soldiers grasping epiphany, like Joseph gently laying your body down and releasing you into the tomb, the darkness, the empty unknown. We would rather hang on to you, friend, and let Simon take the cross as you slip out of line, catch a taxi cab out of town, and escape into your suburban green lawn hideaway, where we drop by for a Sunday cookout and a bud. The mosquitoes would hover around us like angels singing holy, 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 and smell our breath and sweat and bite you and draw a blood drop. And we look at each other and we know now as we hang our weeping heads that nothing ever gets done in clinging comfort. And so the time comes to let you go again and let God do the divine metamorphosis of every weeping, shameful, sad, gasping gentle release into the tomb of darkness where you meet us in emptiness where when we let you go we let ourselves go also as we fall into the earthy black of surrender and wait 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 for your next creation out of nothing your unexpected goodness bleeding through <clears throat> your resurrection of everything we released to you, even ourselves in our fear of you and your mysterious ways. So in the same vein, I invite you um, to partake in the Lord's Supper, which started almost exactly two that well, we're not gonna get historical, around 2000 years ago, but at the beginning of Passover week, um, after Jesus enters uh, Jerusalem and, and has a meal in the upper room with his disciples, he broke bread and said, 
Yeah. This is my body broken for you. Take this in each time in remembrance of me. So as mentioned, the cheese it, whatever you have, please take the bread. <clears throat> And in the same way, after supper, <clears throat> he poured the cup and served his disciples, saying, this is a cup of the new covenant. Drink um, in remembrance of me. And so may we <clears throat> let go of all the things we want um, Jesus to be and embrace um, what it is um, that we find in a God that meets us in emptiness, in brokenness. Amen. Well, guys, um, thanks again for being here this morning. I wanted to let you know some of the things that are happening here in and around Central. Um, of course, this coming week on Wednesday is going to be the last week of Atheism for Lent, which meets at seven o'clock, not on this Zoom link, uh, like everything else. It's a separate Zoom link because we are uh, partnering um, with Mission Hills Christian Church in this program this year. So yeah, and let me just add to that. If, yeah. if you haven't participated yet or done any of the readings, it's okay. You can always jump in on the conversation. Don't, don't worry about that. Yeah, absolutely. So the materials are, are definitely interesting to look through, but entirely not necessary, like Aaron said, to come and enjoy the kind of conversation as we talk about deconstruction, what it means to look critically at our faith. Um, and of course, with the hopes of that strengthening um, a faith in a way that's healthy for um, where we are, where we find ourselves as we move through life. So yeah, if you haven't been a part of it yet, no problem. We'd love to see you on Wednesday. Um, also, on Friday, we'll be having our Good Friday service, which will be a sh very short service um, here at the Zoom link. Uh, and we're going to be hosting that at three o'clock, which is um, uh, traditionally um, the time that uh, we understand Jesus to have been um, crucified on the cross. And so I uh, hope that you'll join us for that if you're available and can take uh, a brief break from what you're doing for work or other responsibilities. Uh, but that'll be uh, this Friday. And then of course, two days later is Easter Sunday, um, next Sunday. And so I hope that uh, you'll join us for that if you don't have other things that are happening. Um, we do have a couple of blood drives that are coming up as well. And I'm gonna share the link here in the chat if you'd like to sign up. I did check this morning and they um, released a whole slew of spots and times available. Uh, those are going to be on April 8th and May 20th. Um, so we are hosting that uh, because our building space is available and it's a way for us to, to do that. If you're feeling more comfortable now, if you've been able to start the vaccine process um, or uh, if you feel comfortable to be there, they're taking all protocols possible uh, to keep people safe during COVID. Um, yeah, give blood and help us save lives here in Los Angeles. And um, that is everything that I have for us this morning.
Bob, can I jump in real quick? Yeah, please, Nathan. Writer's Block. I just want to let everyone know that Writer's Block is going to restart up again on April 6th. And so we meet every other week starting April 6th through uh, June. And if you're a writer or want to talk about writing, um, whether it's uh, you know scripts or short stories or poetry or anything, uh, please reach out to myself and um, I'll make sure you get all the information. Awesome. Thanks so much for that, Nathan. Yeah, Writer's Block has been a, a great ministry here. If you are a writer, um, if you're interested in the works of people here at Central, um, yeah, that's an open invitation for anybody who wants to be involved. And I'm putting that information here in the chat for you. And that is everything we have going on. So thanks for being here. Turn things over to Aaron. Thanks. So now is the time in our service where we uh, share any prayer requests or words of thanksgiving we might have, any, any news we want to share with the church family. Um, you can bring up any joys, any concerns you might have. Uh, you can always uh, unmute and do it that way, or just you can always tap, uh, type it into the chat column if you're more comfortable um, putting it there. Does anybody have anything they want to share this morning? I think it's important if we just say a word of prayer for all those recovering from uh, the latest shootings um, that either were directly impacted by it, by having friends or family involved, or um, just through vicarious, vicariously being traumatized by watching the news. Um, I think in a lot of ways, um, this last year has only been made harder by events like that. And um, let's let's just pray for for our country, for our society, and for our friends and family that might be traumatized or grieving from all this. Loving God, we pray uh, for a broken and hurting nation at this time and, and our communities that are traumatized and grieving those we know and those we don't know as a result of these latest uh, unspeakable acts of violence. And we, um, we pray for their healing, for their strength, for their sense of peace and well-being. but we also pray for real change that hearts and minds might be changed towards um, gun control and that um, real measures might be put in place that not just meet the needs of those who are um, who have been bullied or who have proclivities towards violence or who need um, men, you know mental health care but we pray for real change in this in this culture regarding guns uh, that the idol of guns might be deconstructed and destroyed um, we pray in Jesus name none. And then I see prayers for Angie in the passing of her dad. Yeah, thank you, Rodney, for reminding us of that. Uh, for those of you who know Angie and Dan, Angie's dad passed away uh, over the weekend, and we just want to continue to support her in prayer. We lift up Angie now and, and her family as they grieve, and we pray for her sense of peace and well-being, um, that she might receive um, just the support she needs from family and friends, including us. Um, but we lift up uh, her father and we commit him into your hands. Amen. Thanks, Rodney, for reminding us of that. Um, yeah. There's nothing else. Um, Max, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thanks, Aaron. So this will be uh, the last week of doing this piece, too. But if you've joined us through Lent, um, we've been uh, taking a word provided um, 
to us by our um, neighbors um, over it and fleshed um, and focusing on it just for a couple minutes. So the prompt uh, encourages um, writing something down, you know, a poem, as Nathan talked about, you know, we have a lot of writers in this, in this community. So if you consider yourself that or not, it's just an exercise to meditate, reflect on how today's word um, ties into our understanding of Lent, um, but more broadly into our understanding of collective human flourishing, um, which is at the heart of the gospel, we believe. So I'll put that up with some music behind it. Um, and feel free to just take a couple minutes to meditate, to write something down if you feel so led. This always tests my technical prowess. All right, there we go.
too many buttons to click. Well, there you go. Um, I can include that text in the chat if you want to come back to it later today, but hopefully you were able to think through at least um, how feast um, um, factors into our human flourishing and our own journeys wherever we are on that journey. Amen. Thanks, Max. I want to begin today by sharing a drawing by David Hayward, who is also known as the Naked Pastor. <laughs> Some of you probably know who he is. Uh, He's a former pastor turned artist who specializes in art about deconstruction. And uh, I think most of us probably know what deconstruction means, but it can be defined for those of you who don't know as sort of the loss of faith or the changing of one's faith um, in kind of traumatic or dramatic fashion. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have encountered David Hayward slash the Naked Pastor's work on social media. Um, here is, I'm gonna share my screen. Here's the drawing I wanna share with you today to start. Um, there we go. All right, there it is. Wow, our God looks just like we imagined. <laughs> looks just like them, right? Can everybody see that? Somebody give me a thumbs up. Okay, good. Excellent, yeah. yeah. Let's see, stop share. So um, if you know David Hayward's work, he's usually aiming his cartoons at evangelicalism and fundamentalism, but this cartoon could be a critique of both progressive and conservative Christians alike because we all fashion God in our own image. I believe it was Voltaire who said, God made humanity in his image and we've never stopped returning the favor. Thus, the God we believe in tells others more about us actually than God. And I share this today because this is really the story of Palm Sunday. It's a story about idolatry and projection and crafting God in our own image to suit our desires. The story of Palm Sunday actually begins about 200 years before Christ during what's called the Maccabean Revolt. If you've been at Central for a few years, you've heard me, this is my usual Palm Sunday historical context. As the story goes, the Greeks at that time were the occupying force in Israel and a brave band of Hebrew revolutionaries called the Maccabees rose up in armed resistance against them and were effective at defeating the Greeks, which was an astounding victory. I mean, this was like the first example in recorded history of guerrilla warfare being used uh, to fight an insurgency. So when Judas, the main leader of the Maccabees, rode into the newly liberated Jerusalem with his army, people stood along the gateway, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, which means save us, rescue us. Uh, in fact, to commemorate this moment, the Maccabees minted a coin and stamped the image of the palm branch on it, thereby immortalizing the symbol of the palm as a symbol of liberation uh, from foreign oppression within the Jewish tradition. Fast forward about 200 years later, and we find this exact same scene repeated when Jesus entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week, or what we call Palm Sunday, aka the triumphal entry. So the symbolism of this moment is obvious. The people waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna at Jesus were thinking of the Maccabees and hoping Jesus would hammer the Romans for them the way Judas hammered the Greeks. They wanted a militant messiah. They wanted a king that would rule over them instead of Caesar. This is why they shouted, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. 
And those words got Jesus in a lot of trouble. It got him, it got him convicted of sedition just a few days later by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the region. You'll remember Pilate interrogated Jesus by asking him repeatedly, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate knew Jesus was regarded as such by the people, by the populace, but he wanted to hear it from Jesus himself. The reason why this was such a big deal was because only Caesar, only Caesar had the authority to appoint rulers and kings in his various far-flung territories. And anyone that claimed to be a ruler or a king without Caesar's stamp of approval was a dead man. Uh, the Romans had a zero tolerance policy for such things. This is also why Pilate had a sign hung above Jesus on the cross that read the king of the Jews. This was his crime. He was guilty of sedition. And yet it was all a case of mistaken identity, right? Jesus was not an earthly king. He even told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet even Jesus's closest of followers and friends, his own disciples didn't understand who he really was. They too thought he might be an earthly king, uh, a, a Judas Maccabeus 2.0 who would liberate them from the Romans. And so the lesson of Palm Sunday is a lesson about idolatry, a lesson about how we fashion God in our own image and, be and believe God desires what we desire, such as the human condition. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's not the lesson of Palm Sunday I grew up hearing. I grew up being told that the lesson of Palm Sunday was about how we should welcome King Jesus into our hearts, right? We should invite Jesus into our hearts just as the people invited him into Jerusalem that day. Or the lesson we're told is about how we need to worship God with our whole selves and sing Hosanna to him and glorify him and, and adore him like he deserves, like the people at Jerusalem did, right? But for me, none of that is the lesson of Palm Sunday. Rather, it's about how we must let go of our idolatrous concepts of God, our projections of God. This is also part of the meaning of Good Friday. Palm Sunday and Good Friday, for me, are really about the same thing. The destruction or the deconstruction of our idols. What else could the crucifixion of God stand for, if not the destruction or the deconstruction of an idol? What else could the shock and the disappointment of the disciples represent, right? The shock and disappointment they felt upon Jesus's crucifixion. What else could that represent if not the destruction or the deconstruction of an idol? Remember the, the temple curtain that was torn upon Jesus's death, we're told. This was the curtain in the Holy of Holies, in the inner sanctuary of the temple. What could that have represented other than the destruction or the deconstruction of an idol, of, of a particular understanding of God? Jesus was not who they thought he was. So th this, this is the story of Palm Sunday and Good Friday. It is about the critique of idols, the critique of idols, and, and uh, a, a deconstruction of, of our idols, a deconstruction of the way that we fashion God in our own image or in the image of our desires. And it's important to understand why we do this. We do this because idols give us a sense of control in a world that feels very much out of control. Idols promise to give us what we want so that we can have a sense of wholeness, so that we can have a sense of control, so that we can have security and certainty. There's a billboard right now on Beverly Boulevard in Hancock Park, and I've, I've driven past it many times as I've taken Emily to doctor's appointments at Cedars. The billboard just says, confused? Question mark. 
trust in Jesus. That's all it says. Every time I pass it, I'm like, what, what, what an amazingly vague thing to say, but it's a powerful thing to say, right? It's like that bumper sticker that I'm sure you've seen before. Jesus is the answer, which always makes me, you know, think to myself, but what's the question? <laughs> what kind of questions is Jesus the answer to? Questions about career choices, uh, questions about relationships and marriage, questions about the meaning of the universe. And I'm sure the, the answer to that, you know, people put those billboards up and create those bumper stickers, I'm sure the answer they say is yes to all the above. Jesus is the answer for whatever problems and whatever questions we have in life. He is the ultimate thing that satisfies and fulfills. He is everything and anything we need him to be, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's certainly a message that sells, right? It's a message that fills church pews, or in more recent terms, a message that fills Zoom rooms on Sunday mornings, because everybody feels lost and alone in life to some degree. Everybody feels a deep sense of lack and confusion and wonders who they are and what they're here for and what it's all about. And if you can offer an object, a God, a religion, uh, a self-help philosophy that answers those questions, then you've really got something that sells. But the fact is, whatever we claim is the thing is ultimately an idol. And here's the thing about idols. Idols, by definition, do not work. Idols, by definition, are not real. All idols are, by definition, false idols. All idols are just projections, projections of ourselves, our unconscious desires and fears that we project upon that object or that idea. The, the crucified Christ is not just another idol in a world full of idols. Rather, the crucified Christ is that which destroys all idols or deconstructs all idols. The cross stands as the ultimate iconoclastic symbol, that which crucifies or deconstructs all our sacred objects and all our idols and shows us they are ultimately hollow and powerless. Therefore, to believe in Christ to identify with the crucified God does not mean that we are united with the answers or united with that which will make our lives complete or united with that which will take away all our lack and, and dissatisfaction in life. That's just to make Christ into another idol. Rather, to be crucified with Christ, to identify with the crucified God, the crucified Christ, means to accept that we cannot be whole. We, we don't have the answers, and we are immersed in utter mystery and unknowing, even about God himself. But this isn't bad news. I know it sounds like bad news, but this isn't bad news. It's actually good news, because it shows us that we can live without being complete. We, we can live without having all the answers, um, and we can celebrate mystery and unknowing. We can celebrate mystery instead of being afraid of it or oppressed by it. We can face life as it actually is. In all of its difficulties, in all of its perplexities, we can face life with the same courage that Christ faced the cross with. Faced the, cross with. the cross is life as it actually is. The cross is life in the world as it actually is. Fraught with suffering and difficulty and absurdity. What's more absurd than a crucified God, right? I want to conclude today by talking a little bit about Ludwig Feuerbach. Ludwig 
Feuerbach, a German philosopher from the 19th century. He was the one who originally popularized this idea that God is a projection or often just an idol of our own making. And his ideas would go on to influence the like of Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, and many others. He believed that God is like a mirror, reflecting both our beauty and our ugliness, our love and our hate, both our selfishness and our selflessness. And we project these things onto God as a way of absolutizing our desires and absolutizing ourselves even. Because, you know, if God thinks and desires the same thing as I do, it's no longer just me talking or my opinions, but God, right? It's God's opinions. And you don't argue with God, right? <laughs> but what's interesting about Feuerbach is that he wasn't a complete atheist like many people thought. He actually saw a lot of value in Christianity still and saw himself not as an enemy of the church, but actually as its purifier. He believed that the church needed to be purified of its idolatrous concepts of God. Um, it needed to be purified from its idolatrous relationship to God, but not necessarily do away with God completely. Rather, learn to see God as something that's always been a part of us. In fact, he believed that the humanity of Christ, the incarnation, demonstrated that God is human. And therefore, the virtues of Christ, the virtues of God, are actually human virtues. Virtues like mercy and, and love and justice and altruism unconditional love, equality, compassion, that these are really, these are really human virtues located within ourselves that we've projected upon God, and, and now we need to reclaim them. Think of what he's saying as being like a bank account. For centuries, we have, be, we have been making these deposits into God, depositing into God all that is good, beautiful, and noble in the world and in ourselves, right? when we should have been depositing these things into ourselves and learning to see ourselves and each other this way. So Feuerbach is saying, let's make withdrawals now and begin investing these things into ourselves because these things really always belong to us anyway. Theology is really anthropology, he's saying. All, all God talk, all speaking of God is really a way of talking about ourselves, at least at some level. And for him, this is what the incarnation of Christ really revealed. It revealed that God cannot actually be God without us. God had to become human in order to really be God. God and humanity, therefore, are inseparable. So he's saying something really affirming about both humanity and God here, because he doesn't distinguish between the two. The divine attributes of God, attributes like love, justice, and grace are really human attributes. And that's a wonderful thing and a mystical thing. Feuerbach believed that by taking that seriously, we can become our true selves, become our best selves. But that only works if we first destroy, destroy our idols and stop projecting onto God and take responsibility for our lives. Only then will we be liberated and free and become mature human beings. So that's Feuerbach. And I wanted to conclude with that today because my talk was informed by his work, and I think he offers an interesting perspective worth taking into account. And so I want to open it up for discussion now, per usual, and I have some discussion questions today, but I, I want to, as I always do, first ask if anybody has any questions or comments about, about anything I said. And as always, you can unmute or you can post 
questions or comments in the chat column. So let me ask you this. How do you see Christians projecting onto God today? Uh, how do you see people fashioning God in their own image or in the image of their desires today? Or how have you projected <laughs> onto God, past or, or present? How does, how does this idolatry and projection work today in your estimation? I will just uh, if, uh, briefly add in, I won't answer that question directly, but similar to the Naked Pastor uh, comic, who, who I love, by the way, if you guys don't follow, <laughs> he has so many good comics like that, um, is the, the, uh, the saying, um, you can be sure you've turned God into your image when he hates all the same people you hate. And so I would say, generally speaking, <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind when I think of like, how, how is the the today's church, especially like the today's American church done that. It's like, well, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure all of us could list out number of different groups and ideologies that we would say today's American church hates. Um, and they, they say that even if they don't, you know, God does because God hates the sin inherent in those groups. So I would say that's, that's, that's one of the ways that that really, um, I think comes to the forefront today is all the campaigns against particular groups and ideologies in the name of God, you know, uh, hating those, um, what they represent, but obviously a much, a very short jump to the people who espouse those opinions, hating those groups. Um, so we can talk about specifics if you want, but that came to mind immediately. Yeah. Good stuff, Max. Thanks. Yeah. Anybody see a lot of projection going on among evangelicals, perhaps? <laughs> I think Max kind of touched on that. Um, I, I wanted to bring up the spa shootings, if, if I might, um, that took place in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago. Because um, in my mind, it's a good example of the power of an idol at work in the church today. You know, it's come to light that that shooter was, was driven by a deep sense of guilt and self-hate because of what he learned from purity culture, right? He had been raised in a in a conservative Christian environment that taught him that sexual sin, meaning I'm sure masturbation, watching porn, premarital sex, and even having sexual thoughts distance us from God. You know, it can result in losing your salvation and going to hell or, or at least missing out on God's blessings in this life and a God-blessed marriage and all that stuff. So many of us grew up in, in purity culture and were taught this stuff. And so we understand uh, the guilt, the self-hate, and the anxiety it produces. It doesn't surprise me that that somebody who has violent proclivities might actually be triggered by something as toxic and, and as powerful as, as purity culture and thereby you know, scape, scapegoat the objects of his sin, in this case, Asian American women working in spas. But this is the idol of purity culture at work, yes? I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about um, your experience with that or, or other idols and projections from, from evangelicalism. Um, Anybody want to share? 
something and uh, say that for most of my life growing up in a pretty conservative Mennonite church and then later the evangelical church, so much of what I believed was right, I immediately attributed to being with God or God with me in that. And it was such a strong feeling that once I had that conviction, then I felt like God was on my side about anything that I may have thought. And so that's just like a really powerful and destructive, now that I'm realizing, destructive thing that I went through through much of my life in the last seven years. Yeah, good stuff, Jerry. Yeah, thanks for being vulnerable and sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think so often we hate the thing that is present within us. <laughs> and we all live with, you know, sexual desire or like all this stuff. And um, we're taught to hate that thing. So we project it on others who represent it or live fully in it or, or have a different view of looking at it or experience it differently. And, and then it's, it's come from the, you know, if you just look at the sexual indiscretion among leaders in the church, across denominations, whether it's conservative, evangelical, liberal, or whatever it is, you can see that we have not dealt with this, this thing. Instead, we projected it as evil onto others because we couldn't deal with it ourselves. And it's been an enig it's been this, this poison in the church for centuries and uh, we still grapple with it until we, until we can kind of sit with it and actually acknowledge that it's real and it exists in our lives and it plays out in different ways ways and learn how to have a healthy relationship with it then it'll always be a subject of shame and and um pain and it'll manifest itself in in ways that are destructive yeah yeah and i i think the idol of purity culture this idea of a god that's obsessed with sex or obsessed with you know, making sure that you're sexually pure, you know, that God, I think, is more of a reflection of, I mean, it's pretty complex, you know, as I think you pointed out, Nathan. Um, but I mean, some of that is really rooted in kind of like the, the, the pietism and the, and the puritanical pietism of like some of the early settlers of this country, America is, you know, and I think in some ways our culture is full of, or has those kind of latent piet, you know, pious ideas in it. But yeah. I still, I, I do think it's patriarchy. And I think yeah. it's, I think purity culture is also about controlling women's bodies more than men's bodies. I think it's about controlling women and women's sexuality. And that's a very patriarchal idea. And that, that patriarchal God, that very male God in evangelicalism, your God is very male, <laughs> the one that we were raised with, which is a projection, right? That, that kind of, you know, God is male, male is God. Uh, you know, that's, that's, Unfortunately, the, the easy switch you can make there, if God is male, then male is God, you know, that's, that's kind of the ultimate patriarchal projection. But I, I think that's kind of at the heart, in my estimation, of, of purity culture. And it's about controlling specifically mm -hmm. women and women's bodies for male purposes or, you mm -hmm. know, and, and um, yeah, I, I, think, I think the piety of, you know, growing up in purity culture myself and taking it very seriously. And I won't get into exactly how I took it seriously, but you can imagine. Uh, I, I believed it gave me a closer relationship with God. It granted me a sense of closeness and a sense of certainty and a sense of piety and a sense of wholeness, right? That I'm right with God and others aren't. I'm closer to God than that dude is or that girl is. I'm not damaged goods. They're damaged goods. I'm whole. They're broken. 
when in the reality was, you know, we're all, we're all broken, right? None of us, uh, all of us are, are lacking and, and struggling in life and confused, right? And um, anyway, I, I just think that's part of the whole projection, the whole idolatry of it all. But um, any, any, somebody else want to share about their experience? Matt, you unmuted. Welcome, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, no, um, I, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm on my own kind of journey here. I'm over in Chicago and I'm a friend of a friend who went here a while back. I, I'm, heard about... from, I'm from the, I'm from the Burbs, Glenview. Okay, cool. Well, I'm finishing seminary soon and I'm wondering a lot about kind of the new wineskins of church and my friend who knows about y'all recommended that I check you guys out. Oh, um, cool. And so I've been kind of following the podcast. Anyway, all that to say, I, I'm kind of just taking notes on the whole service, but it's funny because I hope you all can receive this as a, as a compliment. Um, the first thing I wrote down as I tuned in at 12.04 uh, was, um, or my time, 12.04, 10.04 your time, uh, was messy. Uh, in a way, and, and for me, that is so refreshing. Because when we have made church and made faith about this kind of rigid, uh, controlled performance mentality, it's much easier to just, um, it's just much easier to know about the world, you know, to know, to, to navigate this confusing, mysterious world. Um, but for me, so much of my seminary journey and so much of my journey, just personal journey, in the midst of all this has been embracing this uh, mess of a world, embracing the mess of myself, but recognizing that maybe that is the beauty that yeah. maybe those things are not such a dichotomy as a tension that is God, uh, this kind of anthropology and theology being the same thing. I love, yeah, just love it. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, no, thank you. And I, I don't take it as an insult at all that we're messy. <laughs> No, I appreciate that. And um, I'm curious, are you at Chicago Theological Seminary? Where are you? North Park? No, I'm at, yes, I'm at North Park. North yeah, Park Theological yeah. Seminary. Yeah. Very cool. So I've had well, a fair amount of, fair amount of deconstruction in my own, in my yeah. own life, during and prior and currently and, you know. Yeah. Well, you, once, once you start, I'm convinced you never really stop. And that's, that's a good thing I'm saying. Uh, mm -hmm. And Central, we've, we're, we're kind of, Every, not everybody here, but I would say 80 to 90% of us are ex-evangelicals. And um, this is sort of AA for recovering fundamentalists, we like to say, uh, you know, I'm get, with you. getting sober, get, getting sober off the, the drug of certainty um, and embracing the mess, as you as you would say. Yeah, because that certainty is an idol, right? And letting go of it and embracing the brokenness and the messiness and the confusion, and difficulties of life is is really it can be really hard because you know religion is all about selling a certainty and a sense of mastery and a sense of wholeness and the cross is really antithetical to that i think and um yeah but thank you thank you matt thank you for that reflection somebody else want to share yeah um when it comes to kind of using the image of god to our advantage i think that oftentimes we think of adults um, and so this made me think of times when, when children, you know, learn to do this as well. And it's a bit reductive, obviously, compared to the spa example. But I remember a friend who'd gone to elementary school at a Catholic school had said she got in trouble for wearing um, like flip flops or sandals. 
and she said something cute like, but God wore sandals. <laughs> but the idea yeah. was, you know, you're not going to be wearing sandals because we don't want you to get hurt. Like, that's the reality. You know, but God wore sandals. I mean, he's depicted as, you know, this very humble person. But I'm just, you know, I kind of wanted to bring in an example, you know, of kids um, and how they use the image of God to their example to get out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Thanks, Vinny. Yeah, I'm seeing a good conversation here in the chat. Uh, somebody else want to share? Yes. Uh, can we, Bob uh, commented, I wonder if we can believe anything about God that isn't a projection in some way. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. You know, just like language itself, right? Um, even language itself are just symbolic sounds coming out of my throat, right? And you have to be able to understand sort of like a shared understanding of what the symbols represent, right? And in a way, you there, there is no way of speaking of God without using analogs, without speaking from culture and experience and language. And so in a way, all concepts of God are all, even the word God itself is an English word. That word has only existed, I think I heard only for like 500 years in the English language as we spell it G-O-D, which is, you know, in a sense, it, no matter, no matter what, we're always projecting, you know, and we can't help but speak of God, I think, in these kind of anthropomorphic ways and using pronouns like she and he, and but God is not really she or he, right? And God, uh, for me at least, God is not really a being, but God is more of, I don't know, an energy or a force or an experience or an event or, you know, uh, and I won't get into all my, uh, where I'm at with all of that necessarily right now, but you know, no matter even that, even in sort of a non-classical theistic understanding of God, there's still a projection going on. But I guess the point isn't that we, 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 we can't, you're right in pointing out, Bob, that we cannot avoid projecting. But the question is, can we hold on to whatever our projections are like, like this and say, you know, this is what I think, this is what I currently, you know, believe or think, but I'm not holding on to it like that fundamentalist Kung Fu grip where it's kind of like, no, I know, and I'm certain, and this is who God is. No, we hold on to it, you know, beautifully now like this, say, this is what I think I might be wrong. I'm open to changing, um, but this is where I'm currently at. And this is meaningful for me. And this is beautiful to me. And I think that's worth affirming. And I think that's healthy rather than saying, no, this is who God is. And this is the only way to understand it. That kind of projection, right? The fundamentalist kind of projection is, I think, the one that's unhealthy, the the more progressive pro pro projection, the progressive projection, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, the more mystical projection is, I, in my estimation, uh, more healthy and um, leads leads to a place of mystery and openness, and I think more joy and freedom. Uh, but yeah, that's that's you're right in pointing out. We cannot actually speak of God or think of God without projecting. I think that's important to say. Does that make sense? Rodney, you're you're nodding yes. Yeah. And that's okay. I, I really think that's I think there's something actually quite uh profound and good about that too. God and in like that four-year box sense, you know, God and humanity are inseparable. You know, in Christ, if if we take the incarnation seriously, God became human in order to really be God. Um I, I think we can say and affirm with Feuerbach. Uh, God and humanity are inseparable. And that's Trinitarian theology as well. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It, you know, the, if, if, if 
you know, there could only be a son if there was an incarnation. If there's no, if if God isn't human in some capacity, then there is no second person of the Trinity. There is no Trinity. There is no God. Uh, you know, and I think that's that's kind of classic. Here we find even hard baked into Orthodox Christianity itself these ideas that God is human and hum, hum, the human is God. Uh, I, I think that's important to realize. Other thoughts. Good stuff today. Can I go back to purity culture really quick? Yes, I was hoping a woman would would go. Would go <laughs> um, when I was probably ten or eleven, I went to a conference with my mother, and it was a true love waits conference. Oh. And I remember sitting in a big auditorium with a whole bunch of other girls. I do not remember there being a single boy there. Um, and I'm not sure if that was on purpose or if it was just that I don't remember boys being there. Um, but I also remember at the end of the conference, I had to sign a contract. And that contract was between me and God, but not really because it was hung on my wall as a um, as a teenager. And, um, I, looking back on it now, I really view that whole purity culture as an evangelical, I don't know how to say this really, but a, a way to establish control of property. And, um, and because that is what like looking back on the now, that's exactly what it was. It was, you are property of this man and, or you are property of God and you are, you know, and it just, it was such a, um, having a daughter now, it just, oh man, it irks me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a really, it was really an interesting experience because I remember that, um, that contract being framed and put in my living room. That's I mean, it was in your, in your bedroom or your living room. Oh no. In my living room. What? Oh yeah. I mean, it was Nathan's for, like for years. Wow. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't remember what I said, what the conversation was for it to be taken down. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but I mean, it, it really, yeah. Anyway, I just, it, it all comes back to property, I think, and just a grab for, um, that control, um, over women, over it, over anything they can get essentially. Yeah. The commodification of women's bodies through a kind of capitalist evangelical lens. I mean, it's so fucked up. Yeah. Uh, it's so traumatizing and, uh, I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that. And, you're right in pointing out that I think evangelical girls um, had it worse than the boys. Uh, but, you know, I was taught it too, but I didn't have a, I wasn't given a ring and I wasn't forced to sign a contract, but I knew, I knew girls who were, who did, right? Isn't that interesting, the difference in the way that boys and the girls were treated? And it, right, it comes down to property, the commodification of women's bodies, the need to control women's sexuality. Yeah, the ring thing was always strange to me because yeah. it was very much a thing 
that your father had mm -hmm. to remove that ring before your wedding ring was put on. And that just, that sends you for a whole a bunch of creepy. It's a little creepy, more than a little creepy. It's, yeah, it's very creepy. And you wonder why there's so much sexual impropriety in the church, you know? But do you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, it's, it's curious because I'm right now, I have a class on sex and gender. And we are looking at ancient Greek and, and Hindu traditions and, and points of view. So it's, it's a little bit separate from, you know, our point of view, but it's very similar in the sense that in, in societies with patriarchy, there is a undercurrent of fear of female sexuality that runs through all of it. And power is given to the male and the object and desire is seen as the female part of it and females cannot control their desire. Therefore, <laughs> there's a control over this kind of, this, this rigid control. And it's astounding because you see it in India, you see it in ancient Greece, you see it all over of this, exactly what we've talked about. And it's evolved over the years, but it's still what we're dealing with today. And it's, and it's in all, in almost in every single society that's built on different kinds of patriarchy um, where the rules are different. and and you see a lot of abuse of women because of it in across in these societies in our society and a lot of and 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 so i think it's we have to spend some time you know spending some time to learn about it and and realize just the damage done like i'm writing a paper on purity culture for this class because really? i still have to i have to um work through <laughs> like in light of these ancient you know mythologies and across the world now i'm applying it to my own my own baggage and journey that I went through, which is deconstructing what a, what, and trying to come to what does a Christian ethic or not even a Christian, what is a moral ethic, Christian, sexual ethic look like for someone today? Um, and I don't know, I'm still working on it, but it's, it's kind of timely that all this stuff came up because when I saw the Atlantic stuff, I went, I, I, yep, I'm not, why am I not surprised that this has happened? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Nathan. And what's super sad about it also is May, you know, what did that teach you about God? That, that God was, you know, just, you know, kind of like obsessed with your sexuality. And, and it taught us all like this God that the worst possible thing you could do to offend this God would be to have premarital sex or, you know, to do something else outside the boundaries of, you know, marital sex. <laughs> um and it just, it just, it just taught us something really off, some awful things about God, um, and, and made such an oppressive deity for us, um, that, you know, and takes, it takes a while to detox off that or to deprogram ourselves from that God. And that's so much part of what deconstruction is for a lot of us is, is, is deconstructing our sexual ethic and, and deconstructing from that patriarchal God. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say not even just our view of God, but I think it really fucks up our sense of sexuality and our ideas about sex so many in so many ways that I'm not even sure I mean that I can even recover from it yeah um I think it's built in now yeah and it's really sad that's uh, without saying too much uh that has been my experience um being married now for uh 16 years and Emily and I both grew up in that that has been our experience of having to unpack the unconscious um, damage done to us and, and learning to kind of accept our sexuality, frankly, to be perfectly frank. Um, and and I, 
you know, um, and, and dealing with the unconscious damage that was done through purity culture that kind of oppressed us. Um, I'll just leave it at that, but there's been work that has, that, and it's not just our marriage. I'm sure it's a lot of Christian marriages of kids who grew up in evangelicalism, realizing in the thirties and forties um, that they brought a lot of baggage into their marriages from that purity culture. Yeah. Without even knowing it, it just crops up. Yep. Power of these guys. Oh, go ahead really quick. No, no, please go on. Um, No, I just wanted to add that it is also a very strange switch. I was, I was reading this on a, a Facebook group that I'm part of, but as like, if you grew up as an evangelical woman, okay. And so you stay pure and then you get married and then, and then it's like, you're supposed to turn on this switch yeah. and you're supposed to service your husband. And I mean, and those are the terms that are used. Um, and it is just, it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting control tactic because it's like, oh no, you weren't supposed to do this, but now I'm ready to use you. So now, I mean, it's, it's, it's very degrading. <laughs> Josh Harris, remember, remember Josh Harris, the purity culture guru, right? He has now renounced all of that. What he, he think he's in his forties now or something. He's come to terms with the damage that's been done. Um, yeah. 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 Anyway, other thoughts about projections today, idolatries, purity culture. Oh, just really quickly, I wanted to add, I guess maybe like the elephant in the room, but something someone may have touched on and and I looked over was um, the relationship between, you know, Catholic priests and their sexuality. There's um, a Spanish director called Pedro Almodovar, and he did a really great film called um, Bad Education, La Mala Educación, and that was about um, that precisely, and, and he wrote papers about it, sort of uh, discussing how his belief was that, you know, this abstention uh, from sex that a lot of priests are meant to follow um, explains, obviously doesn't excuse, but perhaps puts pieces together and tries to, you know, explain this pattern that we've seen for too long, right? So just another example of that purity, toxic purity, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Vinny. Good stuff. Anybody else? All right. Well, it's about 1130. Um, Thanks for being here, everybody, this this Palm Sunday, uh, where we deconstructed our idols. Um, but next week's Easter and join us for Good Friday if you can. Um, otherwise, I look forward to seeing, seeing you all on, on Easter Sunday. And um, yeah, you're formally dismissed. If you want to hang out and chat, please do so. But go in peace.